You know, people want others to support immigrants and immigration policy reform. And so they tell those stories to encourage that. But I think we have to ask ourselves whether the narratives we're telling are fixing one problem but creating another problem. Welcome to Beyond Soundbites podcast. I'm Jacob Mel. This project explores the truth that God created every single person who takes on the title of refugee, immigrant, or asylum seeker and loves him or her with a depth we cannot comprehend. So far, we focused on stories related to the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program. If you're new to the podcast, you can revisit episodes 1 through 10 to hear firsthand stories from people displaced in Turkey. I don't have any place where I could say, yes, this is my home. As well as insights to the Trump administration's dramatic policy changes related to refugee resettlement. When the United States shut down the door, it affects whole the globe. In this bonus episode, we get to hear more from author Karen Gonzalez. Karen's recent book is titled The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong. It's anchored in her journey coming from Guatemala to the U.S. as a child in the 1980s, and it also draws insights from the scriptures and from her work with immigrants and refugees at World Relief. Recently, Karen and I chatted about the meaning of the term dominant culture, the function of story and advocacy, the nuance of narrative, and many other things. Here's a bit of our conversation. I hope you find it helpful. And maybe we'll just start with that question, what role do stories play in advocacy and in raising awareness? What kind of stories are helpful? What kind are not helpful? What kind are the most needed? So kind of a bunch of questions to start with. Yes, I think stories are critical because stories build empathy. You know, narrative speaks first to your heart and then engages your mind. And we are holistic beings. We have, you know, mind, body, spirit, emotions. And all of that has to be engaged because that's all of who we are. And often we engage people in a intellectual bantering, right? Lots of rhetoric, lots of data. And I think there's a place for that. But I think narrative plays a unique role. And if you think about it, I I often reflect on the stories of Jesus. People would ask him a question and he'd say, let me tell you a story. And, and he would illustrate his point using the story. And uh, we love these parables. You know, they're the most memorable parts of the Bible for many of us. I think where we have to be careful is when we make a story so exceptional. So one of the things that I think is not helpful is when we always have stories about the quote-unquote good immigrant, the grateful immigrant. And we rob immigrants who are our neighbors. We are your neighbors of their humanity when we do that. All of a sudden, they're not whole human beings who have flaws, who have imperfections, who make mistakes, but they're these people on a pedestal who work hard, who serve um, the dominant culture by, you know, trimming lawns and cleaning houses and being nannies, and they just 
stay under the radar. I know many Americans who speed, who jaywalk, <laughs> who are just normal human beings with imperfections, but somehow we create a different standard for immigrants. And so I don't think that's helpful because it creates an us and them rather than, these are my neighbors. They're like me. They're like my children, my siblings, my mom and dad. And so I think those narratives, and I understand the intent behind them is to you know, people want others to support immigrants and immigration policy reform. And so they tell those stories to encourage that. But I think we have to ask ourselves whether the narratives we're telling are fixing one problem but creating another problem. And also I think we we can't assume that because we tell people a story about one person that they're going to take that and make it universal to everyone. And I've seen it even working at World Relief. Someone will come with an immigrant that they know, someone who's in their lives that they care for, and they care only about that person. Somehow the idea of pushing through legislation that serves all immigrants who are their neighbors doesn't enter their mind. It's just about this one person. So I think when we talk about it, it's important to step back and also talk about how this affects all immigrants who are our neighbors, not just the one person. So that's some of what I try to do in the book is, is uh, zero in, zoom in on story and then zoom out to talk about the general and all of the immigrants that we don't know. And I, at one point, I think I talk about people who really cared about me and my family and the community that we grew up with in Florida, but who didn't seem to apply the same principle to a lot of Guatemalans they didn't know. And so they weren't able to have that same level of empathy and compassion for other people. Yeah, I was thinking, well, you're saying that if part of, if you felt like as you were putting the book and your story together, if there was a sense of um, kind of going up against that myth. Yeah, because part of my family's story is that we did break the law initially. We were undocumented for two and a half years, but I don't think that's the whole of our identity as lawbreakers, but that was part of the story. And yet we are so much more than that violation of the law. And people who've read it seem to receive that and accept it because now they know the whole story. And I wanted people to know there's so many immigrants in that situation as well. And we were just fortunate to have a solution to our immigration situation, but many people don't have that. You touched a bit just now on um, the zooming in and the zooming out. And in my mind, that sort of correlates to this idea of um, advocacy as a, a form of loving your neighbor. And I'm curious to hear more from you about that. In terms of advocacy, I think the calling your legislator is probably the easiest thing you can do and the hardest thing you can do, but the most effective 
is to really reach out to the people around you and have these conversations. And I recognize what I'm asking is really difficult for people, that it can be scary too. And I think we need to pray for courage to be able to enter those conversations because they're critical as much as they are scary. You know, as an immigrant person, it's difficult for me to engage people in conversations about immigration because it's deeply personal. I can't distance myself from it and discuss it like some kind of intellectual exercise because it's who I am. It's not all of who I am, but it's a a big part of identity for me. And so for other people who are not immigrants, it can be a little bit easier to have that conversation, to really be able to engage those around them They don't have to take anything personally because it isn't personal. I think there should still be rules of engagement around that. So one of the rules I have, for example, is if people want to talk to me about immigration and I'm happy to engage and be open with them and let them be honest about their concerns, but I let them know. So you're not allowed to say dehumanizing, insulting, or offensive things about immigrants, but we can certainly disagree on policy We can disagree on executive orders, and that's okay. But I do think there have to be lines that we shouldn't let people cross because immigrants are image bearers of God, and that's an offense to God to allow that to happen. We also have to ask questions that are curious, not condescending questions, but curious questions like, that's really interesting. I've never heard that before. Where did you learn that? Maybe offer correction where there's misinformation. You know, I. So you're talking about curious questions from both sides. Correct. Yeah. You know, allow for them to ask you questions, but also you can ask questions. And if there's been misinformation that they've received, you can offer correction gently, kindly. For example, I saw someone posting on Facebook, and this is a person I really care about, who posted something about illegal refugees are taking jobs from our veterans or something like that. And I did not engage them on Facebook. (laughs) I don't think that's helpful, but I did reach out to them so that we could chat. And I said, you know, I saw this and I just wanted you to know, I think there's some misinformation here, but refugees by very definition are legal migrants. They've arrived with full permission to be in the country. So there's no such thing as an illegal refugee. And we had a conversation about this. So I think there is conversations to be had, but in order for that to happen, we have to be humble. We have to also love our neighbor who disagrees with us, who in terms of policy may be on the opposite extreme. And I think also understanding that anything where you've changed your mind took time. Perhaps it was something where you encountered the subject in a variety of different ways. You did some reading about it. You heard teaching or preaching about it or attended a workshop. And it was a process of time where God led you to a different position on a subject. But I think often we want people to change their minds immediately. And that's not the way that kind of this kind of advocacy works. This grassroots kind of advocacy, it's a sustained approach over time. And we have to love people, not just see them as objects of our 
political rhetoric or our political side. We have to care about them too. This is Sharon Schmidt in Kitchener, Ontario, with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America. We hope you'll join us to hear more from Karen Gonzalez in person at our annual roundtable. On October 23rd to 25th, 2019, we're going to gather at People's Church in Toronto. It's a chance to learn, network, pray, and collaborate with others from across Canada and the United States who are engaged in service to forcibly displaced people. Visit rhpna.com to learn more. You've been on a lot of podcasts, like 10, mm-hmm. in the recent months. <laughs> yes. And you speak at a lot of stuff and you answer a lot of questions. So what's the things that people don't ask that you wish they would? I think I wish they would ask me more about my life in Guatemala or even my returns to Guatemala that I've made over the years because my life in Guatemala was really good. And there's a lot of beauty and resilience in that country And there's so many things about it that I love and appreciate. But somehow, it's not a story people are deeply interested in. And it's, and that's always fascinating to me because I wrote the first chapter of my story, the baptism, all takes place in in Guatemala because I wanted people to see that, that there was real joy in that season of life and there was real loss in leaving it. But I don't know if it's because I, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt if they don't have a point of reference or I don't know, maybe they can't imagine it, but they don't usually ask anything about that time. And so that's one thing I wish people knew just because I know that it's easy to think about places like Syria and the Congo and Somalia, places like El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras and Mexico as all oh, these places that everybody wants to leave. But it's not really true. There's a lot of beauty. I love the story in your podcast of, of the man who chooses to take his children back to Afghanistan, even though there is a war there. I understood that impulse that he knew, yes, this is a war-torn place, but it's also where I came from. It's also home. I won't be treated like a foreigner there. I'll be treated like I belong. And yeah, I want people to know that many immigrants experience that, that they have a lot of good memories. Sometimes I'll have people ask me, so what what brought you to the U.S.? You know, why did your family move? So people want to know what the push or pull factor was, but they never want to know, you know, what was joyful and wonderful for you about life there? What are your good memories of living there? Do you, you know, visit family there often? What do they think about you living in the U.S.? There's a whole nother life for every immigrant person that you know, your neighbors. There's a whole nother life that they know, and it's not all loss and tragedy, that they have a lot of good memories of home, and that perhaps you can ask about that. (laughs) So, 
in terms of the audience, I think it's many people who are a lot more familiar with the refugee resettlement program or maybe do have a little bit more of a question mark behind people coming as asylum seekers coming from or through Central America. So for people who kind of feel that way, what would your thoughts or your challenge be? Yeah, I want to say that I understand that. I understand that people might have more questions around that. You know, traditionally, refugees had been seen as the quote-unquote good immigrants, right? Because they came legally, because they were so vetted. But many of the people that are seeking asylum, you know, asylum is essentially a kind of refugee status after you arrive at a port of entry versus before you arrive at a port of entry, which is what refugees are. Many of them are fleeing for the same reasons. I heard someone say once, no one's sitting around in their country thinking about the American dream. Normally, people would prefer to stay in their own country and live their own lives. You know, your home culture is like a castle. It's like your home, you know how to how everything works, and you'd prefer to stay there if you could. So people aren't thinking about the American dream, but they are fleeing, in many cases, a nightmare. I think my challenge to people would be just to consider if something were to happen here in the U.S., and they were forced to flee, how would they want to be greeted when they arrived in another country, in another location? What would their hope be? And to think of the migrants at the border as they think of themselves. They are parents dreaming of better lives for their children. Um, they are men and women. They are children. So many migrants and refugees are children. Some of us have voices that can access channels of power that other people's voices can't, right? It's not that they don't have voices, but they just can't reach mm -hmm. maybe the same kind of influence that others can. So sometimes being an advocate means using that, right? And it does mean speaking on behalf of people. And other times it means like finding ways to creatively translate and magnify those voices and bring them to spaces where they aren't usually heard. And for people from the dominant culture who get excited about a cause or get brought into it, I think we need to think really hard about what kind of advocacy is needed when. Yeah, I agree. I participated in this trip to the border region. You know, there's a lot of people living along these border communities. And so we had local Latinx leaders that were, for the most part, really young people who were our leaders of different groups as they're taking us to these communities on the Mexico side of the border. And it was really interesting because they had been trained, raised up by an organization who empowered them to really recognize their own voice and to use it to advocate for themselves, for ourselves. And now to invite people from the dominant culture to learn at their feet 
and to guide them, you know, on this journey through the borderlands. And it was very powerful and very effective. They even served us communion. There were several of them who were graduates from seminary, and they put on traditional priestly clothes from the different countries they represented in, and they served us communion at the end. And I thought that was a really powerful way to turn immigrants into advocates for their own communities. And I was deeply moved by that. So I think there is a place for that. And there is a place, you know, many of the people who were on that trip, those leaders, were not U.S. citizens. Many were residents, some were on student visas, some were on DACA. So they're not represented in Congress. And this is a place where U.S. citizens can step in and really do this work that they're not able to do for themselves. I know there is a movement called Undocumented and Unafraid of uh, young undocumented people who are choosing despite the risk to advocate for themselves and their community. And then there's people like the ones that took us on that trip, but none of those people really have a voice in Congress because they don't have voting power. But those of us who do have voting power can definitely, in, in a sense, you know, be the ones who advocate at that level. So I do think there's advocacy at all levels. I also think, for example, there are people who've written books about immigration who are white people. And I think that's great. I think that's another form of advocacy because it reaches people that I might not be able to reach. And I appreciate all the people who've invested their lives, who care about immigrants and love them as themselves. And they've written these books. And I think about, you know, D.L. Mayfield wrote Assimilator Go Home or Matt Sorens and Jenny Yang who wrote Welcoming the Stranger. And I have a friend, Sarah, who wrote a book called Love Undocumented. I think this is very helpful for a lot of people in the dominant culture. They might not listen to me and my advocacy, but they may listen to people who look like them. I think another element of it or voices coming directly from immigrants or people of color is like one function that can serve is challenging listeners, white listeners of like where they will hear truth from, right? You know, that's an interesting question of where we receive truth because I, I was thinking about um, often I will visit a church. When I was a church mobilizer, I visited so many churches in Maryland, D.C. area, and often people would talk about diversity and how much they wanted it in their community. They wanted a multi-ethnic church. This was a reflection of God's own kingdom, which I fully agree with. But it's one thing to desire to have people sitting in the pews as congregants, but it's quite another to give them leadership and a platform and really learn at their feet. That's a different level. And often that's a really difficult level because there's discomfort in that. All of a sudden, someone you don't expect is the one who is teaching and, and preaching about subjects. But I think it's a discomfort that we could all press into. It is difficult. Uh, but it's also it's also the way God seems to work in the scriptures. 
You know, God is found in the places that we least expect. And I think about like David, right, who was sort of the runt of the litter, (laughs) but he was the one that was chosen to be the king. I think about Hagar, this insignificant, enslaved Egyptian young woman, but she's the only person in the scriptures to name God. And God sees her and God appears to her twice. And this is the way that God seems to work. So I wonder if sometimes when we're not open to hearing and learning from people we don't expect to know anything, if we're missing just a critical piece, we're missing the way that God might be showing up in our midst because we want a sort of king rather than a lowly child born in a manger. interesting to talk with you and hear you talk about the dominant culture. You kind of place yourself in it, Mm -hmm. but really um, you can kind of be in both worlds, right? Yes. (laughs) Because of who you are and your story and your work and your journey. Um, And my legal documentation. Yes. So I don't necessarily know if I have a specific question about that. I just think it's interesting and it allows you to speak in, in unique ways. So when I'm talking about the dominant culture, I mean white people. And I don't say white people because I don't want it to sound bad. I don't think it's bad to be white in any way, but sometimes the way that's received is is as if white people are the enemy, and I don't believe that. But that is the dominant culture. You know, when I was a kid and I would watch TV, everyone on TV was white. As I look at Congress, everyone there is still white for the most part, or the CEOs of companies. I mean, who has the power in our society? Who has the power to name? Who has the power to make laws? Who has the power to say yay or nay? And so that's that's what I mean when I say the dominant culture. And I can navigate both. And so I am an immigrant, but I'm also documented. I'm a naturalized citizen. I've also got a college education and a master's degree. <laughs> and so I have I have the ability to sort of move back and forth between my immigrant community and also the dominant, you know, white culture. I can do both and in many ways that's a blessing because I can unpack things for people who are newer immigrants. I started working with refugees as an English teacher, which was my first profession. And I had a conversation with a student once. He came up to me and he he was from the Congo and he said, I have a question. I went to the grocery store. I was standing in the aisle. A woman walked by me. She didn't touch me in any way, but she said, excuse me, why did she say this? And I said, oh, this is about personal space. And I explained how Americans have a little bubble around them, an invisible bubble. And when you invade someone's personal space, means you walk too close to them. You have to say, excuse me, because otherwise they'll think you're a rude person. I said, so she was actually being polite by letting you know, I'm sorry that I'm entering your personal space. (laughs) And so it's good that I know things like that and I can help other immigrants understand these things. 
And it's good, too, that I can sometimes help people in the dominant community. Like I was a part of a church in California where they were talking once about organizing this camping trip. And the church was in the middle of a, of a big Latinx community. And I just explained, our people don't camp. We don't do that. <laughs> it's, it's not our thing. It's not bad to camp in any way. I think it's fun for people who enjoy it. I guess. <laughs> but uh, we don't, you know, my dad calls it practicing homelessness. He does not think it's a fun thing to do. But I said, you can fully expect that many of the white people in the community of the church will go, but I don't think people in the surrounding community would be a part of something like this. So, <laughs> so this is a way that you can sort of bridge understanding on both sides. And that's a really good thing. That's author Karen Gonzalez. Her book is called the God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong. As a bonus episode, this discussion format is a departure from what we normally do with Beyond Soundbites, but the opportunity for a Q&A with Karen was too good to pass up. In coming months, we'll be producing another set of narrative episodes that will introduce listeners to more Central Americans at various stages of their migration journey. To get it done, though, we need your help. Find out how to donate and support at beyondsoundbitespodcast.org or rhpna.com. Beyond Soundbites is created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational partners include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, local community partners, and abounding service. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. This episode was mixed by Matt McQueen at Gem City Studios in Jellicoe, Tennessee. 